Hello and welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. This week, CID student ambassador Patrick Hanahan will be interviewing Kusi Homberger, senior project manager at Dahlberg Global Development Advisors. Kusi will be talking about the regions and sectors where he sees the highest potential for impact investing, about striking a balance between social and capital returns, and will provide some tips on how to break into the impact investment market. Kusi, thanks for joining us today and welcome back to the Kennedy School. My pleasure. Thanks. It's great to be here. So your talk at CID today was titled Impact Investing in Emerging Markets. To provide some context for our listeners, could you tell us a bit about what impact investing is and how Dahlberg, where you're currently working, does impact investing? Sure. Impact investing, broadly defined, is investing with the intentional goal of both achieving positive financial returns as well as positive social or environmental returns. Um, it is an industry that existed for much longer than the last 10 years, but really has come into the mainstream in the last 10 years and is a, a term that is now commonly used. Um, at Dahlberg, we are an advisory firm, and so we do strategy and management consulting. And one of the areas that we advise within is what we call investing for development. And there we advise a wide range of clients, including family offices, uh, foundations, uh, development finance institutions, bilateral donors, even NGOs around strategic questions related to where to invest, how to succeed, why it matters, uh, and how to sustain an impact investing strategy. So this can be things like analyzing new markets and understanding what opportunities might exist in that market, say uh, private healthcare in South America. Or it could be things like what rural last mile solutions exist to address you know, energy solutions in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and it could also include things like deal structuring or fund structuring. So for DFIs who are interested in maybe creating specific fund vehicles to maybe address some of those issues and don't exactly know how to structure it, we can help those organizations structure mm -hmm. the funds. And we can also help organizations like NGOs who are maybe already engaging in the space to be more effective in what they do by improving their operations, thinking about how to structure their team, what the appropriate operating model is, et cetera. Although I will also mention that, you know, this is what I do at Dahlberg um, as a strategic advisor, but I, I actually have more experience than that in the space. So I spent about six years at the International Finance Corporation, so first as a consultant, where I did things more related to benchmarking and indicators around foreign direct investment uh, regulations and policies and competitiveness, but also as an uh, investment officer where I got to actually work on sort of deal origination and processing and structuring. And then more recently worked in strategy and research at Global Partnerships, um, where I helped them define their investment strategies in, in terms of in determining investment theses, identifying opportunities, doing a little bit of screening on those opportunities, and helping bring those, those opportunities to investment committee. Very cool. I understand you also had Peace Corps experience in Tanzania once upon a time. Oh, yeah. And subsequently <laughs> with TechnoServe. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, you know, what is it about this international work that has really uh, made you passionate and keeps you motivated and enthusiastic for helping others? Yeah, so I think it's really a personal question about finding your passion, right? And I think in my case, I was instilled through my family a set of values around giving back and not just serving yourself or finding an opportunity to make a living, but actually making a career in something that maybe creates positive benefits to other people. And in their case, in specific, having worked I mean, 25, 30 years in South America, they were particularly interested in helping, I guess, rural low-income populations in that context. And I think that was always a narrative in my life 
mm-hmm. having been born in Peru and just sort of hearing the stories of the people that they worked with and you know the need for additional I guess assistance or resources etc sort of started as my like foundation of hey this might be something that's important that I should take seriously and then when I finally got wise enough <laughs> later on in college that I started to think seriously about job opportunities I had some traditional op- opportunities in the private sector and banking and in the government but I, I asked the question in my mind are these going to bring me the fulfillment in terms of passion things that I'm interested in and I, I said I have the the fortune of being in a position where my education was paid for I've got a great education it's now is an opportunity to give back and so I said I'm gonna go into the Peace Corps it's a non-traditional path and I'm gonna see you know where this leads me through that experience it opened up my own eyes it's they were no longer just stories to me they were actually real people that I got to know and I learned about the everyday struggle of what it means to live off the grid the everyday struggle of what it means to not have access to water the everyday struggle of not having a basic education or or having a situation at home where your father's either passed away or your mother's passed away. All of those reality situations brought home to me the importance of, hey, there's a lot of people out there um, that don't really have the privileges that I've had, and not just in the U.S. context, but globally, and there's some there's certain level of deprivations which I believe are unacceptable, and wanted to to find a way that I could use market forces to help address some of those issues, and I, that's why I went, you know, after Peace Corps, I went to TechnoServe and learned more about how the market could be used. And I've got my first exposure to consulting and say la vie. Thank you. <laughs> Which world regions do you see the highest impact investing potential in over the coming years? Wow. So, I mean, the easy way to answer that question is to say, where's the biggest need? And so in terms of population size, it's South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, where we're going to see... I don't know, tripling. I don't know the official UN stats, but you know, let's say there's one billion population in Sub-Saharan Africa today. It's going to go to two, three billion in the next 20, 30 years, and you know, we'll find the official statistics to back that sure. up. But same thing in South Asia, where you have a mass population that's continuing to grow at a rapid rate. A majority of those people are entering the population at the the base of the pyramid or below the lowest third of the income pyramid, and therefore that tells me that there's a huge opportunity and a need to serve that market. That being said, we don't want to exclude other markets. There's certainly a need, particularly I think it's overlooked often the challenges in Latin America and the Caribbean because of the fact that it doesn't have the mass population size. But let's say we look at North and Northeast Brazil, where you see the same levels of poverty and deprivation as you do in parts of West Africa. And so there's equal opportunity and maybe in different ways to provide market solutions and provide um, services to populations that maybe also need to see some sort of transformation to help get off that lower rung of the, the, the pyramid. Sure. Similarly, are there specific technical sectors in which you see uh, great potential in the coming years, and maybe why? <laughs> so this, this I will answer more from a, like a passion perspective, um, and then maybe I'll talk a little bit about need. I think from a passion perspective, the space that I've dedicated the most of my attention to, and partly because of my experience in Peace Corps and working at TechnoServe in agriculture, where you see, what is it, 80% or something of that nature, um, and I'm not quoting again an official study, so take these in numbers with a grain of salt, uh, of the population depend on some sort of subsistence farming for a living or informal labor, right? Like where farming is a part of their income. This tells me that if most people are making their income from some sort of agriculture activity, this is an important sector. Mm-hmm. Um, either they need to transform and do something else, or they need to do it in a way that's going to help transform their lives and make more income. So, you know, for me personally, I, I'm a firm believer in agriculture. It's um, not only is it consumable and it creates nourishment or 
income for a lot of people, but it's also tradable. Um, and so that like that the fact that it could be exported or brought to other markets also creates um, you know market opportunities. So I think that's one big area. I think the other massive one that's just been a huge hype bubble in the last you know five years is the off-grid energy space and the idea that we can leapfrog traditional grid infrastructure to sort of small-scale solar or mini grids or those type of things that allow us that we don't have to spend all of that money building out the long poles of infrastructure to bring electricity to the people that are off-grid but we could actually provide them with a low-cost solution which gives them clean and efficient energy without all that additional infrastructure cost and so I think there's a huge opportunity there there's still I don't know the official numbers as well, but you know, three, four hundred million people in Sub-Saharan Africa are off the grid, and there's also large populations in Central America, in South Asia, uh, in Southeast Asia, et cetera. So this is another big opportunity area, and I, I think a third I would mention is health, not in the same way as, as agriculture or energy, but in health, what you see is traditional public services are not satisfying with quality the needs of a mass large populations and. How do we help solve that problem? I think part of the solution is provide provision of private healthcare services. And to do that, we need to extend the reach of private healthcare services through private capital or in other means to reach those populations. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's an opportunity there as well to invest and in, you know, in new and innovative ways to, to provide basic health preventive and treatment and diagnostic services mm -hmm. to, to low income populations that have never had those services. That sounds great. Do you happen to have an example of a of an investment that you've been involved in recently? <laughs> yes, I have examples of all of those that you could um, definitely, I can, I'm happy to share. So in the healthcare space, I am, when I was at Global Partnerships, one of the first things that I got to look at was an investment in a private chain of holistic care for diabetes. It's called the Clinicals del Azúcar. It's based in Mexico. What they've done is in the Monterrey region, they've set up private centers that do, I guess, diagnosis as well as treatment. They have nurses and doctors, and they also sell the medical supplies, and they provide this as either you can buy on a per visit or you can have a subscription. And they've done this in a for-profit way, and they've now replicated and built out the, the network. I don't know what number they're at now, but they've got more than seven clinics in that region and are expanding to the rest of Mexico. I love it because they're addressing a huge and growing like crisis in Mexico which is diabetes caused by poor diet mm -hmm. and obesity. It's a NCD issue. It's a moving towards middle income market issue. And they're coming up with a private solution to address that. And the role of impact capital has been critical. That's one example in the healthcare space. In the agriculture space, one of my favorite investments was with an organization called Aldea Global in Nicaragua. It's a trade uh, cooperative that basically works with smallholder farmers and provides them with technical assistance and, and inputs so they can get fertilizers, seeds, etc. so they can better you know, produce higher quality coffee and then they provide them access to markets um, and export to international buyers such as Starbucks and etc. Um, I particularly liked it because the executive director running was originally from Philadelphia and I grew up in Philadelphia and so when we met we sort of had that little bond mm -hmm. and he's been working in, in Hinotega in, in Nicaragua for I don't know, 20, 25 years, and he's really committed. Um, he's helped grow that organization. The farmers have benefited. You've seen all of the member farmers have really seen their lives transformed, thanks for their membership in Aldea Global. And I'll give you one more, uh, which is in the energy space. This is a, another investment we did at Global Partnerships, is in a, a 
um, I guess, a picowatt solar lamp manufacturer called Greenlight Planet. Their headquarters is officially in the United States, but they, I think their sort of operations are based also out of India, and they serve a global population. They're targeting primarily sub-Saharan Africa, off-grid population. And I believe they've now sold, I don't know, more than a million lamps. Um, they're doing pay-as-you-go financing. They're, you know, they're increasing the size of the lamps to provide additional types of solutions. There's a lot of companies in the space. This is one of the market leaders. Um, they provide a high-quality solution to a, a very user-centric design, very similar to what I see in sort of like Apple iPhone. They went to the consumer and they tried to understand like how do they how would they use a solar lamp? Like what would be the use cases? One of the use cases is for like washing laundry. So they made it so you could hang on the on the rope. It was easy to like provide light when they washed their clothes. They've found uses, but people use it when they're riding on a motorcycle and they're riding on a bike at night, right? So they made it so it was easy to put in the front of the bike. Um, they found that students like to use it for studying at night instead of using candlelight and kerosene. So they put the lamp in a in an interesting like a metal frame that allows it just to sit perfectly above the piece of paper. So it's like they designed a product that's very simple but elegant and solves a lot of problems that I guess low-income populations are seeing in an interesting way. And as a result, sort of the proof is borne out in the market. They're providing this product. They sold more than a million. The need is way more than a million. Um, and I, I think that's a pretty impressive wow. organization. Really cool. Yeah. Thanks. How do investors strike a balance between market rate returns and social returns? Is one more important than the other? Uh, um, it's a great question. I think it's one that a lot of people struggle with. I think impact investing has been advertised as you don't need to have a trade-off. I actually, having now worked in the space, I'm not sure that that's actually true. I think there is somewhat of a trade-off. If you think about it this way, if you're making an investment uh, and it's working, and you have the opportunity to invest more in something that will deepen the impact, or you have an opportunity to invest more that will increase its commercial scalability, you're making an implicit choice. There's a trade-off. And so there are funders out there, fund managers out there that have like an impact first approach, and there are fund managers out there that have like a commercial returns first approach. And I think the vast majority of the capital is in the commercial return first approach, although the vast majority, like the NGO and sort of maybe smaller fund managers are in the impact return approach. They both have a role to play. They're both needed. I certainly hope that the the mainstreaming of impact investment doesn't crowd out the need for philanthropic capital to fund the impact first approach to provide like these innovative solutions that wouldn't just bear out in the market on their mm -hmm. own, right? It's a little bit of like right. an industrial policy for products. Right. It's like we need a little bit of upfront capital to get over that hump to make sure that these solutions are viable and then they can be scaled. Are there ways that um, the approaches of impact investors can collaborate with existing donor programs? Or, you know, it seems that there's, there's many different groups and bodies there trying, you know, working towards one goal, sure. albeit with different approaches. Are there other sure. ways that you've seen that collaboration work? I would answer that in two ways. So there's still a need for every tool in the toolkit. Right, and so their impact investing is one tool. Um, traditional donors uh, providing technical assistance and donor funding is another tool. Although I would say it has a checkered history, there still is a, a definitely a role for it. And so I would say we have to bring everything to bear to solve some of the most challenging and critical issues. And I would say I don't want to diverge too much, but say like climate change and, and conservation. Mm -hmm. This is probably the next biggest issue of our generation. We're gonna solve poverty. We're gonna solve some of the biggest disease in my lifetime, I believe it. We're gonna end pneumonia. We're gonna end like some of the largest, most pervasive problems. But we, we haven't even gotten to the tip of the iceberg and figuring out what the consequences of how we're gonna deal with a changing climate. 
And so there's gonna, we need to bring all like, tools to bear to address those issues. Um, at the same time, donor funding, as I mentioned before, is incredibly critical, and donor and philanthropic capital is to unlock the ability for an impact fund managers to be risk-taking, to uh, be innovative and, and structure deals and do things that are maybe harder to do. And so they can provide that uh, patient capital, as the term is used, to allow um, investments to be made in things that are hard to do. You made some really interesting comments during your presentation about your work with global partnerships mm -hmm. and when you guys were strategizing your investment, the degree to which you would go and choose what you called a bottom-up approach where you're meeting with the local communities and understanding the local context as part of your planning process. Mm -hmm. Could you kind of talk about that and just how important that local framework is when, when doing impact investing? Sure. I think there's a strong need for thinking about the user when you design the product or the solution and how the user is going to benefit or use that product, right? So I gave the example of the solar lamp before of how they designed the product specifically thinking, watching how people were using it, right? Mm -hmm. The same is true for the financial products and the, whether it's a loan from a microfinance institution or a, um, a contract from an agriculture cooperative, we actually have to think intelligently about what is the problem it's solving? How does it address the pain points the, like in this case, it's lower income populations have and what are the reasons to believe that if we provide that solution to that population, it will actually create an impact? Is there evidence to bear that out in that mm -hmm. context? If all of those things are true, um, which combines in reality both field research on the ground talking to people, but also top-down sort of looking at literature and, and you know, talking to experts, mm -hmm. then you know, we would make a thesis or an impact thesis and, and invest in the space. Great, okay. so some of our listeners might be interested in pursuing a career in this area. What advice do you have for aspiring impact investors? As an HKS graduate yourself, are there specific courses or skills that you would encourage interested students to seek out? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a tough question, to be honest. So let me take it in pieces. First, let me talk about sort of my experience at the Kennedy School and maybe what courses um, are most relevant. And then let me talk a little bit about sort of advice that I can give having gone through the experience myself of how to crack into the, the space. I think there is a need in general to be analytically rigorous. And so taking courses that give you sort of analytical rigor, be it in finance or statistics or data, um, you know, computer programming, etc., I think that is a big space of need. So doing that is incredibly important. I also would say <laughs> let's not leave behind the philosophical origins of, and motivations behind why we do some of this work and, and really wrestling with some of those questions. So I know... It's not typical for a course in a graduate program to offer things around, like, say, moral philosophy. But those are valuable things to think about. Why would we provide what, um, a solution? Will it actually work? Uh, what are the sort of fundamental questions? And, you know, some people don't need to have an education to address those issues. You can do it through your conversations with your friends or, you know, however you want to. But I think those are important questions to be sort of ask yourself in terms of selecting career path, et cetera. More generally, outside of the school experience, I think field experience is important. I think my career path has shown that. I think if you want to understand how solutions, what solutions could work, it's important to have experience on the ground to see them. And I think, you know, maybe doing internships across the full spectrum of the universe, and what I mean by that is sort of funders, mm -hmm. investment managers, social enterprises, um, 
you know, seeing how the whole full side of all sides of the equation helps you understand what will work and what won't work and sort of what would be the questions. I think there's a, an actual dearth of people who understand what the motivations are of somebody who's trying to get their capital back for a family office versus the motivations of a first-time entrepreneur who's trying to make a new business work and, and save Rohogana. Like if you can spend time when you're young to see those different sides of the equation, I think that would be incredibly valuable uh, for the whole space. In terms of, okay, so in terms of advice for people trying to break into the space, I would observe that unfortunately there's more demand than supply of jobs and therefore it is quite difficult and you just have to be open-minded about that and say like, you know, I'm going to look for some opportunities, but it, there might not be the right opportunities at the right time that you're looking. And so that's just a reality. So just being open-minded about that. That being said, I think there are different types of positions and sort of being honest with yourself of where my skill areas are versus what is actually being offered. So let's say you want to be more in fundraising or you want to be more in deal execution or you want to be more in sort of economic analysis and markets or you want to be more in um, communications or, or, or sort of figuring out what your space is and how your skills match what the specific needs are will help you target better. And I also think it always helps to do volunteer experience, if possible, to crack into a new space when you don't have any experience. So I use the example of when I was in the MBA program, I worked for uh, a impact fund called Impact Finance based out of Luxembourg. They were looking at you know new markets in Southeast Asia, and I volunteered to help them analyze Indonesia and Vietnam, and sort of we just did a market scan, and that gave me the the credibility and connections to that people and then I put it on my CV and now I had a story to talk about to other people so that was very helpful there's many other cases like that you could think about and you know everyone if you're really serious about breaking in it's it's about building that network testing out ideas trying being motivated I think there's there's probably a, a need and a, a place for everyone it might not be in the existing organizations it could be creating your own it could be you know who knows but I think there are there are space for, for people who are passionate and want to make a difference. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing your time and experience with us today, and, and best of luck for continued success in your career. Thanks so much. It's been great. Cheers. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.